So hello and uh, welcome to this 9, uh, 9.30 session at, uh, in the final day of Adelaide Writers Week. My name is Royce Kermelovs. I will be the host for this uh, next hour. Um, I just want to begin by just uh, acknowledging the, 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 the Ghana people with traditional owners of the country. Um, so uh, we, uh, we acknowledge the Ghana people are the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains and pay respects to elders past and present. We recognize and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs, and relationship with the land. We acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to the Ghana people living today. And just a couple of housekeeping things before we get going. Um, again, we are living in a time of global plague. Please take precautions, look after yourself. We are very lucky to be able to gather here today at this amazing festival on such a beautiful day, you know, together. Um, so stay safe, do your best to you know, follow the precautions as necessary, wear a mask where you can, you know, social distancing, all that good stuff. Um, in terms of general information, we, uh, like, we ask if you, if, if you want to support your, uh, you know, for those of us who work with words, this is our, uh, uh, our life, our living, our heart, and our art. Please support us. You can buy books in the book tent. It, I mean, in this case, I'm not sure that a signing would be possible, but, um, you know, you know pl please, help, please help out where you can. Um, today, I am, I've, I've, been very, I've been very much looking forward to this conversation for weeks. Um, today, I'm speaking to Alec McGillis, who is a senior reporter at ProPublica, which is a fantastic investigative journalism outfit, and I encourage everyone to go and read their reportage at some point as well. Um, he's an, a veteran journalist and a multi-award-winning journalist and the author of Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One Click America, which is, if you need a visual cue, this is the book right here. Um, and, you know, in this book, Alec has mapped out very beautifully uh, the, the rise of Amazon and what it's done to you know, the, the communities who live and work around these warehouses. Um, today, I believe Alec is speaking us, to us live by video link from Baltimore. So, I mean, are we? Uh, so, uh, Alec, good evening. Hello. Good evening. Uh, good morning. How, how, how are you? I'm good. I wish I was in Australia. I've never been, so I'm very sorry not to not to be there with you. Well, the main thing is you're here in spirit-ish, and it's uh, yes. and it's it's good to have this chat. Um, and look, if you, I, if you forgive me for we've got a short amount of time, so we'll just dive right in if that's if that's all right. Sure. So I, look, one of the things I enjoyed most about this book is the connection you made, and we should be clear from the outset that this is not necessarily a book about Amazon, but it's about the people around it. And so one of the connections you made was the work of Amazon, this idea of sorting, and how the outcomes of the rise of this company um, have resorted the landscape into a kind of a new dynamic of wealth and power. And so I wanted to kind of kick this off by asking you, when did you first have this insight into what was going on? Sure, I'd be glad to. And, and thanks so much for, for, for doing this. And thanks, thanks for having me. It's really an honor to be part of this great event. Um, so this book really did not start out being about Amazon at all. Uh, I've been a national reporter in the U.S. for many years now, and going around the country, I was getting more and more concerned about the growing disparities between places in America, the sort of sorting out of, of places between a small set of winner-take-all cities, um, cities like New York, San Francisco, D.C., Washington, D.C., Seattle, Boston, that were absorbing an ever greater share of the country's prosperity and growth. And then a much larger part of the country, share of the country, all these cities and smaller towns that were really kind of falling behind. That gap's been getting much bigger in the US, much bigger than it's ever been. And it's incredibly unhealthy for both sorts of places. And I think it had a big role in 
in our politics. It, it, was, it was a big reason why Donald Trump got elected in 2016. So after that election, I thought, I need to write about this incredible regional inequality, find a way to write, to tell the story of this inequality. And uh, because it bothered me so much, I thought it wasn't getting enough attention. Uh, and, and I finally decided to use Amazon as the frame to tell this story of regional disparities in the U.S. And I chose them for two reasons. Two reasons. One is that the company is now so ubiquitous in America, just it's unfathomable just how omnipresent they are now in our lives in, in all sorts of ways. So it's simply a good thread, a good metaphor to take you around the country and show you what American society and culture are becoming. More importantly, though, I chose it because the company and the other tech giants like Google and Facebook are themselves driving this regional inequality. One reason we've ended up with this incredible concentration of wealth in just a handful of places in the U.S. is that we've ended up with such a concentrated economy. We have just a handful of companies dominating various sectors of the economy. And so you, in very crude terms, a lot of commerce and daily business activity that used to be spread all around the country, whether in the media or in retail or in other sectors, is now just being kind of hoovered, sucked into places like Seattle. And you end up with sort of dystopian levels of wealth and inequality in cities like Seattle. And then those cities become very unaffordable and congested and really kind of you know lose their character. People get displaced. And then you've got all these other cities that have lost that, that commerce and daily business activity and prosperity, and they end up with blight and abandonment. So it's really unhealthy for both sorts of places. It sort of throws the whole country off kilter. And that's the story I wanted to tell, that off-kilterness through these places and through the people in them. And, and as I understand it, I mean, how personal was the story for you as well? Because you, you come from a city and a community which is dealing with this, which has been affected by this in some way, by kind of deindustrialization and the rise of these sorts of, these sorts of businesses. Yes, this is very personal for me on several levels. I... I Grew up. I first saw this disparity growing up in a small city in western Massachusetts, two and a half hours west of Boston, a city called Pittsfield, that used to be a very solidly middle-class, small manufacturing city. It was a big General Electric town. That, that was the company there. And then General Electric pulled out as I was growing up, and the city has fallen steeply in population and, and, and wealth and now is lagging ever further behind, like many other small manufacturing cities, lagging further behind Metro Boston, which is becoming bigger and wealthier by the year. The gap between Boston and the rest of the state is just growing extraordinarily um, wide. And, and just, it's, just so, it's so stark to travel those two hours between my hometown and Boston now. Then I saw it again, the gap, very personally, when I was traveling around the country as a reporter, I would go to the Midwest, to Ohio, and Iowa and Michigan, and I would in, around the time of the Great Recession, and I would see just how much these communities were struggling um, in those years, 2007, 2008, 2009. I was covering the Obama campaign in those years, and I would just be traveling all around with him, and I would see how much they were struggling. And then I would come back to Washington, D.C., which is the wealthiest metro area in the entire country, and I would just be so struck by not just the prosperity on display in Washington, um, where I was working at the Washington Post, at the time, but the complacency, this complete disconnect from what was going on around the country, this complete cluelessness, really, about just how how good people in Washington had it and how tough things were in the rest of the country. 
And that really bothered me. And then finally, I probably, most recently, I've really experienced this disconnect in, in where I now live, which is Baltimore, um, this, you know, good mid-sized city just up the road from Washington, D.C., 40 miles up the road only, um, two cities that used to be very similar in scale and prosperity, and now they're just on completely different trajectories. Um, Washington is thriving, Baltimore is really struggling, and and to see, it just, it's mind-boggling to travel those those only 40 miles. It's really, it, it almost makes you feel dizzy to, to the difference in, in atmospheric pressure really between the two places. And, and, and Baltimore has become what I call in the book a warehouse town. It is now home to three or four uh, large Amazon warehouses where people are working those very difficult low-wage jobs. Um, people in those warehouses are in the exact same place as major, uh, as, as the biggest steel mill in the world used to be that used to pay people a lot better. Now you're working in the warehouse jobs in that exact same spot. And then just down the road, Washington, D.C., is Amazon's second headquarters. That's where they're putting their second headquarters with with very high-paying jobs, 25,000 high-paying jobs. And so that gap between those two cities is going to grow ever wider. And it's so unhealthy for both places. And in that, I mean, and this is something else that I think was important about this book, is that we're just, you're, you're describing and you're discussing these really big ideas, you know, deindustrialization, financialization, the you know the polarization, all these sorts of things. So, but but how important was it for you to to make this about people? Because your story is so, so centered on the people that live this life. It was it was hugely important. Uh, I did not want this book to be an argument book or a thesis book or a policy book. It's not. It's a reported narrative. I'm a reporter, you know, not a political scientist or an economist. I spend my, my time going and talking to people, going to places and writing about them. And and I've met some extraordinary people in my travels. And so I wanted the book to be about them. I wanted to, it to give you, the reader, a very visceral, almost, you know, really kind of almost literary fiction kind of um, feel for these places and the people in them to give you sort of the whole ecosystem of of this new world of the American economy, the logistics economy, taking you all the way from the top to the, I take you into the you know gala parties with Jeff Bezos, all the way down to the bottom of the ladder, down to the guy who's making the cardboard boxes for Amazon in Dayton, Ohio, and take you into his life, what it's like being that guy making those boxes, and then everyone else on that, on that ladder. It was so important to me to, to make the book really grounded in those in those lives and in those people. And just one more thing to frame kind of the rest of the conversation as well is that I'm I'm wondering when we talk when we talk specifically about Amazon. So how much do you see Amazon as say a product of a broken society or as a force in helping to break society? I I see them really as both. And actually that's this came up this exact Good point came up in my discussions with them. I, of course, talked to them at length for the book. And their main, it was interesting, their their main response was, look, we know these jobs are not great. They're not ideal. Um, and we know that, we also know that, in a way, we know that our dominance is a little bit um, excessive. It's hard to deny that. But look, if it wasn't us, it would be someone else. There are all, there are all these larger forces happening in the world. It's all... Um, you have globalization and technology and and 
no matter what, there was going to be e-commerce and there was going to be some company dominating e-commerce. It just happens to be us. You know, we can't help it kind of, um, just, just our luck. And my response to that, to them, and, and when I spoke with them, and then also implicitly in the book is that, yes, there are these larger forces acting around all of us, but I do still believe that, that we all have agency that we have agencies, agency as citizens and consumers, and that they have an agency as a, as a company. And Jeff Bezos has agency as an executive. That it's not all just these larger abstract forces. There are specific things that they have done as a company that have exacerbated the problems described in the book. They have been especially zealous in pursuing all the different tax breaks and tax subsidies at all different levels of taxation as I go into describing great detail in the book. I, I do all this investigative reporting to find these incredible conversations between them and local officials who are giving them huge sub tax subsidies to come build the warehouses and the data centers in their communities. So they've been especially aggressive on that front. They've been especially demanding as employers in the workplace. They have, it's they've been their choice that has made brought their warehouses to entirely new levels of sort of hyper-efficiency and productivity to the point where the work is so grueling and so thankless that, that, the, that the turnover there is still rough on, on average about 100% in the course of a given year, despite the fact that they're now been gradually raising the starting pay somewhat, the turnover is still so high. They actually prefer having the turnover, turnover be that high because it deters union organizing. It's harder to build solidarity if, if workers don't even get to know each other before they leave. Finally, it was their choice to put that second, huge second headquarters in Washington, D.C., in the wealthiest metro area in the country. They could easily have chosen to put it somewhere else, one of the many cities that so desperately could have used a boost like that, St. Louis or a Cleveland or a Baltimore. They chose not to do that. So there are all sorts of ways that they've actually, I believe, really made things made things worse. Yes, in general, there are, of course, these broader conditions of, of sort of our modern existence with, with e-commerce and the way we live now. Although even though, even in that case, I think that we actually do still have, as, as consumers and citizens, have agency in pushing against that somewhat too. I don't believe it's all inevitable. So what I hear you saying when you when you talk about this, my what I hear you talk, describing is a situation where Amazon, as a company, as an entity, has been almost kind of uniquely primed to kind of exploit desperation and despair. Is that right? Absolutely. I mean, that's really what you see in these communities where they go in to to build these warehouses, and they're now just. You can't even keep count of the warehouses. They've been growing so much over the course of the pandemic to handle this surge in orders. Um, the steel mill location in Baltimore that I, I described that was, again, once home to the largest steelworks in the entire, in the entire world, 30,000 people working there on a peninsula just outside town, now has, when I was when I was sort of wrapping up the book, there was one warehouse with a second one on the way. Second one on the way. They now have three. I mean, it's 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 unfathomable how fast it's all growing, and so how much it's burgeoning around the country. But those those communities like Baltimore or Dayton, Ohio, or other places, sort of left behind cities that I focus on in the book, they are so desperate for any kind of jobs at all because of what's happened with 
with with deindustrialization, with the complete just wipeout of a whole swath of sort of mass employment in these communities. So along comes Amazon, and even though its jobs are going to be paying less than half of what those jobs used to pay at the steel mill or at the auto parts factory uh, that's now completely gone, you have local officials that are just hand and foot bending over to, to hand Amazon these subsidies just ex with extraordinary desperation and obsequiousness. It's, it's really, it's, I, I have some of those communications and exchanges in the, in the book, and it's just astonishing to see just how, how completely deferential, and deferential is you know, a mild word for it, the, the, these, these dealings tend to be because they just feel like they have nothing and that they have to take even just these, these very kind of high, turn, high turnover, low-wage jobs stuck out in the warehouse out on the edge of town because they've really been, they feel like they've been left with no choice. I want to ask more about that in a second, because that was a very interesting point that I picked up on. But before we do, perhaps just for people who may be unfamiliar with the trajectory or the art, like, you know, uh, you know, uh, of Amazon, why don't we take it back to the start briefly? I want your book begins in a basement in Seattle. Why? Because that's where a man who lives outside Denver, Colorado. Um, was living for many months following the start of the pandemic in in 2020. Um, this is a man who had left a um, a I, in the in the book I call him Hector. He was the only person in the book who I to whom I gave a new name because he's still working at Amazon and was worried about getting in trouble for talking to me. But in any case, so Hector used to have a high tech, a high high tech, high paying high tech job in in San Francisco. Lost that job came to, ended up in, outside Denver, went to work at the Amazon warehouse, the pandemic hits, and they're getting so little information, these workers in the Woodsy warehouses that are handling this incredible surge in order as we all hunker down and start buying everything from Amazon. They're dealing with this huge surge in orders. They're overwhelmed by that surge. A lot of people leave. The people who are left dealing with this massive new wave of work, of orders to handle, are not only dealing with that wave of work, but are terrified of getting COVID, of course. Amazon, the, the supervisors at the first are doing very little to, to protect them, to deal with the reality of, of COVID contagion, and also are giving them very little information about who's getting it, um, you know, who, who to watch out for, that sort of thing. So Hector is so worried about bringing it home. He's, he's, he's not young, he's um, in his, late 50s, early 60s, and he also lives with his elderly mother-in-law who's got lung problems. And so he's very worried about bringing COVID home. And he goes to live in the basement, the unfinished basement of his family's townhouse in the suburbs, um, and just has virtually no contact with his family whatsoever. It's just seals himself off down there, brings a little refrigerator down, brings like a hot plate down. Um, and, and that's how the book opens, trying to convey to people the reality of what it was like for the people who were working in the warehouses, doing that essential work, while so many of the rest of us hunkered down in safety for months and months and months in the course of some countries longer than others, um, and and basically shifted so much of their life onto online, ordering online, and depending on these on these people to bring everything to them. I really wanted to bring that home right at the outset of the book, that new reality. And that contrasts so nicely with the origin myth of this company, with Jeff Bezos coming to Seattle, right? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, so yeah, he, this, that story is, um, is, is, a, is a pretty remarkable one. And it goes actually to the, the earlier point about the tax avoidance. Um, Jeff Bezos was driving around the country, um, ha having had this idea in the early 90s to start this company, take advantage of the internet, um, to start a company selling books. Um, not out of any great uh, affection for books particularly, but because he knew that books made sense as something to sell online because there were so many titles out there, almost you know, an infinite number of titles that you could do something that bookstores, physical bookstores could not, which is you could essentially stock every book on your website and thereby have, have an advantage against those traditional booksellers. So that's why he chose, chooses books as his first thing to sell on this new thing called the internet. And, and then his, but his other, his other of course advantage that he had over booksellers was that he didn't have to assess sales taxes. At the time, if you sold stuff online, you only had to assess sales taxes to your customers, which is another five, six, seven percent, right? If you had physical presence in the state where they lived, where your online customers lived. So instead of putting this new company in California where all the other tech companies, so many of the, many of the other tech companies were, he he didn't want to do that because then he would have had to assess sales taxes to people in California and the largest state in the country. He didn't want to lose that, that competitive advantage. So he decided to put the company, build the company in a much smaller state, Washington state, Seattle, so that he could retain uh, more of that tax advantage. And that, that thinking carried through over the years. Everything was about trying to keep the tax advantage as long as possible and, and, and also simply pay as little taxes as possible. And, and, so, and you mentioned before, I mean, the attitude of people, decision makers, policy makers, people whose job is to assess these sorts of things. And there's a very neat little anecdote towards the, I think, the, the, the early part of the book where you talk about uh, the, the, the tax boards and how essentially you had institutions that had a combination of apathy and you know, self-interest where most applications that came before to, you know, for, for to tax incentives to get discounts, to get, you know, waivers and these sorts of things were just waved through. And I was hoping you can talk a little bit about that because for me that was such a perfect illustration of what of, of what has kind of enabled the rise of this behemoth. Yeah, it was this it was extraordinary to be able to watch this. I, I kind of it's this but I would say I was going to say that I snuck into one of these meetings, but I didn't sneak in. It was public. It's just one of these pub, so-called public meetings that no one knows about. So they might as well be private. Um, this was in the state of Ohio, where I, I spent a lot of time for the book. The, the two main kind of left-behind places in the book are Baltimore and various communities in Ohio, which is in the Midwest, home to Cleveland and Cincinnati and Columbus. And in the capital city of Columbus is where they have this this obscure agency. That, that just doles out these massive tax subsidies to companies that are that's, that basically come to them and say, look, we're thinking about coming to Ohio, but we're not sure. We're also thinking of going to Kentucky or to Illinois or, or what have you. And, but, but if so, maybe we could be induced to come to Ohio. And every time this, it was astonishing to sit there in this meeting and watch every one of these, these, these requests simply being rubber stamped by by a board that was just riddled with conflicts. People who, lawyers who had represented the companies or 
represented the towns where the companies were going to go and just all just completely conflicted, completely untransparent. No one there to watch this happening, really. And this is how Amazon got these these huge tax breaks in this one state. There was a poignant moment. Uh, I think it was either at the meeting I went to or one that I was whose minutes I was reading about later where a a department store, actual physical department store that um, that I ended up featuring in the book as a one of these regional department store chains that had grown up around the Midwest, serving for decades, serving shoppers in these small cities with an actual, these beautiful department stores where you could just go and buy whatever you wanted, you know, Christmas decorations at Christmas and real kind of civic center feeling to these stores. This department store chain, which is called the Bonton, um, ended up going out of business a few years ago Great, due, due greatly, of course, to competition from Amazon, and and at this exact same board that that had doled out these these uh, huge tax breaks to Amazon um, ended up having to revoke a much smaller um, subsidy they, that they'd given to this department store chain after the department store chain finally went completely out of business. It was they not only went out of business, but they were going to have to. You know, repay some of this to, to to this outfit in Ohio. And so, I mean, and this kind of ties into another thing I really wanted to ask you. Is, there's another point in your book, and I think was specifically, I mean, this was a bit later when you've when the companies evolved and started to look at the defense industry and how it could insert itself into the kind of that space. But you, but the, you describe this almost this army of lobbyists who were waiting kind of in the halls of power to get meetings of people. And so I'm wondering, what did you learn about, I mean, how how influential is Amazon when it comes to that sort of lobbying and that wielding of public influence amongst these authorities? They're massively influential. They have now, they have the second largest lobbying spending in Washington after either Facebook or Google. They kind of trade, trade places in that list. But so they spend um, almost as much as any company in the country on lobbying. But it goes beyond that, actually. The, their presence in Washington right now is just astonishing. They've kind of taken over the entire city in a way, in a way that I don't think has really been captured. And I tried to capture it in, in those chapters of my book. The two winter cities that I focus on are Seattle and Washington. And they have such power, it's almost kind of soft power in Washington that comes from the fact that First of all, they got that lobbying. Then they have all these big federal contracts. So much of the government, the CIA, um, various other defense agencies are contracting with Amazon for their cloud services. So that's the whole other part of Amazon, Amazon Web Services, hugely lucrative, where they basically sort of contract out to Amazon to handle all your server space, to put all your data with Amazon. They'll take care of it. So Amazon does that for the government. So it's very, very present in Washington through those huge federal contracts. Then you've got Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post a few years ago at a steep discount. He, he buys the newspaper seemingly, you know, supposedly as a gesture of, of basically almost philanthropic goodwill for the sake of journalism, which it is to some degree. But at the same time, of course, it's also just hugely valuable for him to own the 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 big paper in the, the federal capital of the federal government in the US. Um, and then on top of that, he's now built or bought and renovated the largest mansion in Washington, DC, this incredible 
double-wide mansion that he spent $35 million on, and he's turning it into a kind of a salon, like a gathering space for the local power elite. And then finally, you've got Amazon picking Washington for its second headquarters and building this massive new complex just across the Potomac River in, in Northern Virginia, right by the Pentagon. So you put this all together, and Amazon has now just acquired this extraordinary presence and power and profile right there at the seat of the federal government. And, and because they know, this is the key thing, they know that their biggest threat right now is not from other companies. They've become so dominant in their spaces that it's very hard for anyone to compete with them. Their biggest threat right now is the threat of federal intervention, that, that the federal government will finally realize that we're heading into a new period of monopoly in America, just like we were in the early 20th century with Standard Oil, J.P. Morgan, all the rest of them, and that, that it's time to do something about this. And so to guard against that, Amazon is building up this kind of soft power all throughout that city. And look, it's, it's, it's hardly an original insight, but, you know, knowledge is power. And it's from what, you, from what you've just described, from what you've written about, from your work on this, it's, it's almost, it, Amazon's, you know, like, and particularly with Amazon Web Services, the data centers that they're building, essentially you have an, an entire nation and, you know, arguably one of the most powerful governments on earth, storing all their sensitive information with one, com- with one company in these places that have been carefully selected. I mean, how should we think about this? It's, it's, it's almost hard, it's hard to get your mind around it. It's the, I mean, the data centers are just extraordinary. They're, they're, they're very strange and hidden away. And you've got these there's a whole sea of them outside Washington in the, in the old sort of farmland horse country of Northern Virginia, these beautiful kind of rolling Piedmont Hills have now been just taken over by these massive windowless concrete boxes, but they're not even boxes, they're, they're enormous. The box does not do it justice really. They have very few people working in them. They just sit there humming away. They hum quite loudly so much that it really bothers a lot of the neighbors. Um, Amazon gets massive subsidies also to build those, those data centers, even though they employ so few people. Um, they devour energy, of course. They devour need a lot of water, too, but they need a ton of electricity. One reason why so many of them are clustered in northern Virginia is that that's very close to all the coal, the cheap coal, dirty coal in Appalachia that fuels a lot of these data centers. There's now a new ring of them going up in Ohio, which I wrote about a lot in the book, outside Columbus. And actually one of the towns that these sort of strange exurbs that has become home to all these data centers in outside Columbus is an, is an exurb that was created out of scratch, created out of the farmland by none other than Jeffrey Epstein, the notorious um, uh, abuser of many girls and young women, um, who recently met his end um, in, in jail. And it's, it's a very strange kind of side story there. But anyway, that's, that's, that's the role of these data centers in Amazon Web Services. And, and yes, you have so much, so much data concentrated in one company, which is a problem actually because they've, they've had a couple um, you know, major technical glitches in the last year or two um, where if something goes wrong at AWS, which is their acronym, 
it affects all sorts of industries, all sorts of banks, and yes, and also the federal government. So no, it's not ideal to have so much concentrated in one company. It's not ideal in so many ways, but, but also in this way. And it's interesting what, you, what you're describing next. You're describing in a way almost like, like, almost like a country within a country. You have these centers that are separate from the communities that they're in, that they're often very isolated, respective to other places. Um, and I'm wondering, like, in the past, I mean, we, in a different era, we had kind of the corporate paternalism model. We had kind of like the General Motors, the Ford, the, the companies that right. had the large unions, the, with the high incomes that at least felt some kind of need to take care of people or to be present in their lives in some way, whether it's sports sponsorships for the local club or right down to just, you know, social clubs of people. How is Amazon different in that respect? They're, they're so different. I'm so glad you brought this up. I mean, we have to be, one has to be careful, of course, to idealize the, the kind of company town of old because there, there's a lot there that was not um, not so pretty with just the, the the incredible sort of alliance on the company. The, in some, in the most extreme cases, of course, the coal towns of your company would pay you in, in so-called script that you could only use at the company store. So, so there was... There absolutely were downsides to that model, but what I what I found when I wrote about that one that peninsula in Baltimore, Sparrows Point, that was home not only to the biggest steel mill in the world, but this entire town it was extraordinary. There was, they had a town of five or six thousand people right there amidst the mill, with a, de- a grid of streets and movie theaters and churches and schools and stores and an entire town, which has now been wiped off the face of the earth. When they, when before, even before the mill finally came down, the town was brought down too. But you talk to people who lived there, as I did, and you would get such a sense of the community that they felt, the, the togetherness, the sense of purpose and 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 identity that that came from that kind of existence. And whereas now you you're there, and there's just all these warehouses. And what one gentleman I spoke to who used to work at the mill, who still lives nearby, pointed out that he notices that when people leave the, the warehouses now, they go screaming out, driving like you know 80 miles an hour to get the heck out of there at the end of their shift, at the end of this very grueling, depressing work. And whereas back in the old day, you, might, you, you would have just rolled out, often, often, of course, these guys would roll out and go to one of those taverns nearby with their coworkers um, and now, and there was a sort of, there's some kind of togetherness there since all these different forms. Now you're just heading out on your own, you're screaming out in your car to get the heck out of there. And they've actually had to put in that notice, they had to put in all these major speed bumps there in in Sparrows Point on that peninsula now because people are just tearing the heck out of there when they leave. In such contrast to what came before. I actually found a gentleman who, and I built that whole chapter around him, who spent 30 years working at the steelworks, and then after it closed, went back to work. We may be having a slight technical issue. Amazon knows. Amazon's. Uh, oh, Alec, you there? Hello. Yes, I'm there. Uh, so, sorry, we had a slight we had a slight technical hiccup, oh. but we got you back now. Um, I think. Uh, okay. If you repeat that last couple sentences. Sure. Sure. Um, I, w- I met this one gentleman who um, 
built the whole chapter around this gentleman who spent 30 years working in the steel mill and then came back to work in the warehouse on the exact same piece of land. And one reason he found that contrast so depressing, so hard to take, it's not just that he was making much less money at the warehouse than he had in steelworks, but that he felt much less sense of community. He didn't know any of the people he worked with at, at the warehouse. He had grown up in that town, in the steel mill um, community, and now he was back there at this warehouse. He knew nobody, he felt completely isolated, and he lasted only a couple of years at the warehouse job, the Amazon warehouse job, because it, there was nothing there that you felt part of. And, and I've got a couple more questions, but before we do, in about five minutes, I'm gonna open up the session to kind of questions from the audience. We have a microphone just at the back. Um, if, if, you, if you wanna ask a question, please, by all means, come down, line up. Um, and in five minutes, we'll start taking questions. But before we do, and this is, and I've just got a couple more because I want to be a bit greedy. Uh, but you, you've made the point as well that for Amazon geography, you know, the map, where you locate the warehouses, where you pl place these things is so important and often corresponds to kind of these tax incentives. But the other thing that your book did so well is draw out kind of the inherent racism associated with some of those decisions. And I was hoping you can talk briefly about that. Sure, I mean, the, in a lot of ways, the, 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 the racial impact is most um, apparent, really, in, in what I was speaking about at the outset. When you have this incredible concentration of wealth in certain communities, because the market has gotten so concentrated, you end up with cities like Seattle and Washington that are experiencing just heartbreaking displacement, levels of displacement. I mean, to a, on a scale that I think is hard for many to comprehend, Washington, D.C., which was once a majority black city, um, really kind of a exemplar of sort of black political power in, in the U.S., is now is now no longer majority black, has, has lost 20,000, it's been very carefully quantified, 20,000 black residents have been displaced purely through, through unaffordability in recent years. And, and then in Seattle, you have, I focus a lot in the first chapter of the book on this historic black community in Seattle, um, just a really kind of legendary neighborhood called the Central District that we don't think really necessarily of Seattle as being um, all that diverse a city, it's, you know, compared to other U.S. cities, it's not. But it had this vibrant black neighborhood called the Central District that, among other things, produced just an incredible list of, of musical greats, Jimi Hendrix, Quincy Jones, Ernestine Anderson, all this genius, musical genius coming out of this neighborhood. And that neighborhood has now been, there, it just could not withstand the immense wave of prosperity that has washed over Seattle um, which used to be this very kind of you know, middle-class, quirky city. Now it's just, it's not, it's almost at San Francisco levels of, of inequality and, and just sort of dystopian levels of inequality. And, and the Central District couldn't withstand it. And, and now it's, to see this, when I went there, I, I live in a city that is very, is, is, is still majority black. Baltimore is 63% black. And, when I went to Seattle into this neighborhood, I was confused at first. I almost thought I was in the wrong place. I thought this can't be the historic black neighborhood. I, this is not, it's, it's, it's become, it's truly been 
almost erased at this point. And and I said I focus on people in the book, including a legendary choir leader in in the neighborhood who is just heartbroken by by this this just really kind of wipeout of the world that she grew up in. Well, you also talk about campaigns to fight back, and you speak to several people who have engaged on in different campaigns on different like like, like local levels up through the state. And one of the lessons from that was, you know, get everything in writing. Um, so I was hoping you can talk a little bit about how people are pushing back and even if at this stage it's possible to push back. It's absolutely possible to push back. And, and, and I did want to make sure to feature some, some of those people who are pushing back and who are fighting, partly just to give readers some sense of hope that to show that there, that there is a way forward. Um, the, the person you alluded to who, who learned to get things in writing um, was in Seattle, where, where there was this ex- pretty remarkable fight just a couple years ago. A lot of local progressive activists, progressive government elected officials trying to pass a new tax um, that would have hit Amazon and other large employers in town, but not even hit them that much to pay for new housing and homelessness services because Seattle has just a dreadful homeless problem right now. And, and they, they managed to pass this, te- they, they negotiated with Amazon to, to sort of come up with a small, a, a moderate sum that they'd be willing to be taxed for this, you know, for this purpose. They kind of whittled it down. And then right after it was signed into law, Amazon turns around and launches a big push to get the law repealed by referendum. Um, on, on that fall's ballot. It was just an extraordinary moment of betrayal, really. And it was just two days later after the law passed that they launched this, this, new, this new move to, to get, it, um, get it passed. And, and this one councilwoman asked them, she said, I thought you said you were okay with this number. And they basically told her, well, yeah, but we didn't say that we weren't going to fight it later. It was really, it was, it was, the, the cynicism was pretty... Pretty, pretty remarkable. And so I, but I focus on a local activist in Seattle who fought to, to get this tax passed. They have since uh, managed to get a smaller, yet smaller sort of version of that tax through. Um, I focused also on small businesses. I think one of the most inspiring chapters in the book is focuses on some small business owners in El Paso, Texas. And I could have set that chapter anywhere because you've got people like this all over the country who are, who are fighting back. These were in this case, they were people who owned office supply businesses in El Paso, selling paper and printer cartridges and all that kind of stuff to local businesses and local school districts. And they were watching Amazon just move in and trying to basically co-opt them, trying to forcing them to start selling on Amazon.com instead of selling directly to their local customers, which would mean that they would lose anywhere between 15, 20, 25 percent of their sales to Amazon, the middleman, and watching them push back against that was was really quite inspiring. So I absolutely believe that people can push back, and because again, people do have agency. People have agency as citizens and consumers. And look, final question before we throw, throw to the questions from the audience. When I checked, your book had been reviewed two hundred times on Amazon, and they were all quite good reviews, by the way. But. I'm wondering how much then you see there's a certain cognitive dissonance out in the world about this. Um, the, 
the way the way I've always thought of this is that I I've encouraged people whenever possible to to support their independent bookstore. I have some. I, we have a wonderful independent bookstore here in Baltimore that actually called the Ivy that actually hosted an event for me when the first day my book came out, even though it was still a rough time with COVID, um, March of last year, March of 2021. And they hosted a wonderful outdoor event for me. And it was so meaningful to have that, have people together talking about the book. I've had other wonderful events around the country, mostly online, you know, with independent bookstores. So I encourage people to, to buy the book there, of course. I just, these, 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 these are such important parts of the local fabric and communities. That said, I under, also understand that there are some people for whom it is simply um, more convenient for whatever reason to, to buy the book online. And I'm certainly not going to, to stand in the way of that. Um, just the way that in general, the way I look, think of this in general as, you know, what do we do now as consumers? My general message is that I'm not out here advocating for a boycott or for any kind of cold turkey. But I do believe that we, we can all moderate that, that so many of us in this hunkering down of the past couple of years, this shift to sort of complete kind of one-click kind of life where we're just fulfilling all of our needs through through the, the laptop screen, through the computer screen, through the phone, is not healthy. And it's so important that we now start to emerge, return to our communities, not just in our shopping, but also in all sorts of other ways, going to book festivals, going to the theater, going to the movies, going to the restaurants, supporting the things that, the physical places in the places we live that make those places special. Um, so that's been my general message, not necessarily to cut it off entirely, but to moderate. Thank you. That's an excellent point. Uh, that's excellent. And um, look, well, now we're going to open to questions from the audience. We'll take uh, someone. So we have a few, few people online. Uh, thank you very much. Look, my question is this. Uh, whilst Australia has similar problems in the sense that states compete against each other and don't reveal the undercover uh, payments they make to businesses if they can entice them into their state to uh, cr hopefully create employment. But in the United States... And I tend to think that Australians do think that, notwithstanding some of the excesses, we do have some sort of control at a political level in this country. To When things go really bad, we might actually elect a government that might do something about it. But maybe it's a forlorn hope. But in the United States, my impression is this, and this is what I'd like you to comment on. I find that the United States is basically if it's not already a fail, uh, heading towards being a failed state. The institutions are failing. The Supreme Court is corrupt and crooked. The political system is crooked. Gerrymanders are rife. And Biden can't even get that thick-head senator from West Virginia and the other woman from Arizona to toe the line to get an independent electoral commission established in the United States. So my question is, what hope is there? That's a big question, and, and probably a good one for a man who also wrote a biography about Mitch McConnell, so. Uh. Yes. Yes, I did, I did write, uh, my first book was a, a compact biography of Mitch McConnell, this, the Republican leader in the Senate, called The Cynic. Um, so many, that addresses some of the points you just raised. 
I would just say one thing I would say to this: there, it is you're right. There's it's 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 pretty bleak if you look at it this way, and and it actually plays directly into the regional themes that that fulfillment is about because. One of the U.S.'s, America's problems right now is the structural problem created by our Constitution that, that basically has greatly privileged certain states, small states, rural states, over our heavily populated states. The fact that we have, that our Senate, you know, the upper body, upper chamber in our legislature has as many representatives in it from Wyoming, which has, which is the smallest state with about 500,000 people in it, as does California, with close to 40 million people in it, is is madness, and and that is not what the founders I think ever could have envisioned, and and so you when you end up with the sorting that I describe in in fulfillment, where you have such wealth in certain big states, big cities, and then this growing resentment in those smaller rural states, and that resentment then turns into a certain kind of politics. And that politics becomes way overrepresented, overrepresented in the government because the Senate is so completely skewed to those states. So yes, we have major, major structural issues in the country, and that that really do need to be addressed somehow. Hi, um, my question follows on the, the the previous question a little bit, insofar as. Uh, two words that really haven't been mentioned during uh, this morning's session have, are Republican and Democrat. And you, I noticed that, uh, I think it was 2020, Ohio went Republican, um, that the, the places, uh, Seattle and Washington, which have all the money, are, are Democrat. And from this distance in Australia, you know, we see that the Democrats are the people who care about people, and the Republicans are the people who care about the success of the individual. Um, how does how does the Amazon situation play out there? Do, does do it, does either power structure have a, a a sort of view on what's going to be done about Amazon and companies like that? I'm so glad you brought this up. I've um, there's quite a bit of this in the book, and there's actually even more, I've written some pieces since the book came out that get at the politics of all this even more directly. It's very, this is actually very fraught and very complex. The, um, in, in general, your generalization of the parties is, you know, is, is correct. That's how they've come to be seen overall. But right now we have a very interesting situation in the US where there's a, re, there's a realignment going on where the Democratic Party is increasingly becoming dominated by very, highly educated, high-earning professionals in those winner-take-all cities. That, that is increasingly becoming the base of the Democratic Party, um, the Seattle's and San Francisco's and Boston, New York's. And you what, one reason that Trump was so successful in, in the Midwest and places like Ohio is you had people, former Democrats, longtime Democrats, working class, mostly white working class people, who looked at the new Democratic Party dominated by these highly educated, high-income professionals in the cities, these cities that were now just completely leaving their own cities behind. And they look and see that and they think, wait, that's not me at all. I don't identify with that whatsoever. I also don't really identify with the old Republican Party of country club Republicans, but but this but Trump kind of offers this this sort of third choice. 
And then he, he goes ahead and wins the Midwest, and the rest is history. There's, it gets even more awkward in the case of Amazon, where Amazon is now, first of all, is on, on the one hand, you've got Democrats who want to do something about Amazon and are, want to do something about breaking up these big monopolies, the kind of you know progressive Democrats, Democratic mindset. On the other hand, though, you have the awkward fact that a lot of Amazon executives were, used to work in in Democratic administrations, there's a real kind of bond between Silicon Valley and Washington. Amazon's chief uh, lobbyist, chief influence guy, was Barack Obama's spokesman in the White House. You've got the revolving door there, a very close bond between elite Democratic circles and elite Silicon Valley. And on top of that, there's the added awkwardness that Amazon's biggest market, this is very key, is in the big blue cities. It was always that way because a lot of more conservative rural areas tended toward Walmart more. So Amazon was always strongest in the cities, and that became even more so the last two years, because in the pandemic, uh, pandemic response in America, as you probably know, is very politically polarized. And so it was the Democratic cities, big blue cities, that were especially cautious about COVID, hunkered down especially, and bought even more of their stuff from Amazon. So you have a Democratic electorate that has actually become even more reliant on Amazon at the same time as you have some progressive voices in the party who say that we need to do something about this company and about this dominance. So it's actually very, very fraught for the Democrats. Uh, you actually said something I wanted to ask you about, but I'm not sure we have time. But we have a couple more questions, so we'll get through those. Thanks, Alex. One of the things that I found interesting, maybe in the answer to the questions, uh, you have started to raise it, but you didn't in your talk, is about regulation and governance. Now, in Australia, companies do uh, have guidelines with regard to regulation and governance. Is, um, are there any rules applying to Amazon and are state and uh, the US federal government invoking these rules or is it essentially a wild west? Great question. There are, we certainly have some regulations um, in our country. So we have regulations, for instance, about the warehouse work and, and labor regulations for safety. And, and when, when accidents happen, we have an agency that investigates those accidents. And I go into great detail in the book, and I have a whole sections on some terrible fatal accidents that happened. And, and I managed to get all the investigative records from those accidents, and I show the, the regulators coming in to, to look into what happened. But they are very often very lax and very sort of light in their, in, in, in their regulation, and there's often very rarely any serious discipline. But there is now a new—Amazon has gotten so dominant that there's a new school of thought that, that Amazon and, and the other tech giants are so powerful now and so— ubiquitous in our life that that we really can't even hope to break them up at this point. They just are what they are, and that we need to start treating them actually as essentially as public utilities. The way we treat, regulate the telephone companies or the railroads, these features of life that are just you know undeniable, that we, we, we're going to have now a massive search engine. We're going to have this store where everyone buys everything, and but we need to regulate them much more heavily the way we do our utility companies. That's a whole other possible approach to dealing with the reality of their dominance. Final question. 
Is there any difference between Amazon US and Amazon AU Australia? I, I have to be wary of sounding off too much about how things are in other countries, but I know that I spent the last five months last late, late last year reporting in Germany, and and I know that in Europe that that there's that things are better, somewhat better to the extent that you do have more, more, more organized labor within the warehouses. You have much more worker say, worker voice. Um, I've noticed in Germany also that you have still a much healthier brick and mortar landscape with downtowns that are still doing much better and and much more of a culture still of people going out, you know, walking down the street to go shopping. And and I couldn't help but decide I couldn't decide whether this was a sign that that Europe was was protected against the threat, the kind of total dominance of Amazon, or if it just meant that they had a longer way to fall. And that there was just that you were just going to lose even more there when Amazon eventually triumphed. I know that is unfortunately all we have time for today. Although I'd love to stick around and chat some more because it's been a fantastic conversation. But thank you, Alec, for for tuning in on a on, on, I'm assuming a cold winter night. I don't know what the season is there. It's pretty. It's pretty gray. It's, it's pretty gray. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's been a pleasure, and thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. Thanks to all of you. Wonderful. And again, for those of you who have enjoyed this chat, like, please, like, thank you for coming along for a start. And second of all, if you want to support Alec, if you want to support journalism, again, for those of us who work in this area, this is our life, our heart, our living and our art. Please go, please, you can buy some books in the book tent. There's other, there's other great books there. Please enjoy and please enjoy the rest of the day. <laughs>